I don't know, let's try it again. <laughs> Three, two, one. Uh, oh, let's intro. Shall, I'll, I'll do it, shall I? Welcome, everyone, to episode six of First Aid Lit. We are a podcast that promotes and explores the life-saving power of literature. So we talk about what books we'd carry in our first aid kit for any situation to get us through the good and bad in life. My name is Nicola Sheppy. I'm Angela Whipperman. And we are back in lockdown. We are. Hooray. Um, Not. Yeah, so for a beautiful two episodes, we saw each other. And now we're back to looking at each other for a screen. I know. That, that might just be the future now. I wonder if we'll, yeah, will we ever record again an episode of this podcast? I don't know if the same room? anyone will record any episode of any podcast in the same room. It just seems to be like, this is the way. You don't have to deal with time zones. You don't have to deal with booking rooms and things. That is true. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I'm getting sort of better at uh, sensing body language from people's shoulders upwards. <laughs> it's a new skill. Whoever um, knew we'd need that skill. What have you been doing with your lockdown? Have you been reading anything interesting? I have. I've been trying to read a lot more lately. I think fortunately my housemate's gotten really into reading. So I feel like we're kind of encouraging each other. And every morning we both sit up, get up early and sit and read. Do you know what I have been reading this week? Throwback to last week's episode. Uh, I'm reading Pride and Prejudice for the first time. Oh, yay. Do you love it? I, do you know... I like it a lot more than some other Jane Austen. The thing I think I've realised that I really like about Jane Austen is I just love a good adaptation. So I started watching, I know I shouldn't really be doing this because I'm reading the book, but I started watching the BBC drama, um, which came out, I think in the 90s, one with Colin Firth playing Mr Darcy, yeah. which is on Netflix. And it's a pretty faithful adaptation, but I am enjoying it slightly more than I'm enjoying the book. And I know that's probably really bad to say because obviously i think that's okay colin firth does look like he's gonna murder her a lot of the time and i don't know if that's really <laughs> encouraging a good message but it's a fun adaptation you know you get to see when you read some of the characters you can't necessarily visualize them that well whereas when you get to watch it on a screen it's just so much better oh so that's kind of interesting to me actually we've kind of slipped into adaptation station already but we I'm have <laughs> so as you know this year i discovered Wolf Hall and then subsequent books. There is an adaptation of Wolf Hall. Yes. Which I have decided not to watch until I've finished the trilogy because I, wa- I don't want all of the people to suddenly have faces from the film. Or, well, the yes, TV show. Yes, I know what you mean. So yeah, do you prefer to like have seen an adaptation so you have an idea of a character in your head or do you prefer to have your own character? Do you know, ordinarily I would say I prefer to imagine them myself. And I think Wolf Hall is a good example because I do think it was very well cast. But when I'm reading about Thomas Cromwell, I'm just not picturing Mark Rylance. I mean, it's probably the fact that we know these, you know, these characters are based on real people. So we know what they look like in real life. So something like Warfall, I will say the Mark Rylance thing was a little bit distracting because he just, he is too handsome and soft looking Mm -hmm. and eloquent looking. And obviously Cromwell is meant to be this very kind of sturdy I mean, he describes himself as ugly quite a lot. With Pride and Prejudice, I am enjoying getting a sense of what the characters look like, particularly characters like Mr. Collins, where you get a sense where, you know, he's presented in the book as being this really like, oh, just a man that gives you the ick straight away. And you don't necessarily see why in the book because you're not given a lot. He seems to be talking like everybody else. He seems to be perfectly polite. But when you see him on a screen acting all bumbly and looking a certain way, Mm. you get a much stronger kind of sense of, ugh. For a certain character so yeah i am slightly pro adaptation when it comes to pride and prejudice but i am enjoying the book i like that all the chapters are like two pages long so it feels very quick to read i actually haven't read a jane austen in a long time and i my memories of reading jane austen books all the ones that i've read i think i read got in, onto a jane austen vibe when i was like maybe late teens so i know maybe i was still very much like a romantic and believed in being swept off my feet Aww. so maybe if i read them now i'm more cynical I see I feel I've done the reverse but now I'm like yeah I get it now I get these struggles to find husbands <laughs> it's pretty depressing what are you reading um so I'm actually reading um I don't know I said actually like it's a surprise I've started a book called a uh, gentleman in Moscow have you heard of it ah oh, I hadn't feels until familiar. it was recommended to me right. um I'm really enjoying it it's actually just I think I needed a book like this so it's quite a fun book to be honest I don't actually know what it's about because I'm um not that far into it I know the basic premise which is that it's set in Russia just after the revolution 
and it follows Count Rostov, and he is this member of the aristocracy. And um, at after the revolution was well successful from the point of view of the revolutionaries, there was a big purge, and lots of aristocrats were killed for being aristocrats and being the part of the ruling class. But this guy, Count Rostov, is allowed to live, but he. Um, has to live the remainder of his life in a fancy hotel where he had used to stay. So they were, they're like, well, you love this hotel, so now you can stay there forever. So he has to go and stay in this hotel, and, but up in the loft rooms. And then it, it sort of views Russia, the changes in Russia during like the 20th century through his eyes. So, but I don't actually know really what's going to happen because I haven't read it and I haven't read any um, kind of detailed reviews. Interesting. But it's quite, it's like, I think it's, it can get quite heavy in parts from what I understand, but generally it's quite comedic. He's quite a funny character. Um, and I think there are other kind of funny characters that come in and out. So I think I needed a bit of a, like a more lighthearted book. I've read quite a lot of like deep books recently. Yeah. So having something that... Um, it is funny and light. It's quite nice, and I'm re- I'm racing through it, so I'm really enjoying that. Is it a uh, yeah? Is it a recent book? I was going to say because I'm yeah, thinking book. the Rostovs were also in War and Peace. Probably could be a coincidence, but so again, like I don't really know not much about this period of Russia other than that there was a revolution. Like I've read Anna Karenina, um, which is kind of like slightly pre, isn't it? Yeah, it's, like I, it's been a long time since I read it. <laughs> I feel like I need to stop talking because I don't know enough to get any of this history right. History podcast. This is not. <laughs> so yeah, the Rostov thing. Basically, my understanding is that you can be like a duke and a count and a prince and a princess in Russia at that time. Like loads of people were those things. It wasn't a tiny group of people. So I think there were probably like maybe a lot of Count Rostovs. I don't know. Um, Maybe we should stop making stuff up about Russian history. Back (laughs) to the book. (laughs) It's by uh, Amor Taos. Ah. And um, he is American. Um, And he published it in 2016. Oh, so very recent. Wow. Yeah, so really recent. And I think it was um, was a bestseller. Yeah, New York York Times bestseller. Oh, fantastic. Um, But yeah, really enjoying it. Um, And a bit different to stuff that I've been reading recently. Yeah, I think I totally agree. I like what you say about reading some light books. Uh, Particularly reading Wolf Hall um, or that trilogy around the same time. I mean, The Mirror and the Light is such an epic commitment. Uh, I've been following a lot of the... Booker shortlist because yes. the prize got announced the other day and I've got so many of those books on my reading list now but I'm getting the sense that they are going to be pretty heavy and pretty depressing in many cases so I've got yeah. to prepare myself Are you going to read Shuggy Bane do you think? I would love to yeah I think it sounds it was kind of on my list anyway there was that I think um, Avni Doshi's Burnt Sugar sounded great there's a couple of others on the list that sounded really good but I think Shuggy Bane now that it's won and I'm hearing a lot of people say it's a very well deserved winner and I think that gives me it definitely piques my curiosity do you think you'll read it um i think so i think i do tend to read booker winners because mm. i don't know you like to know what it, the conversation like about. To know. yeah i actually quite like when i don't like them because i think then i get to have good discussions yeah. with people about why i didn't deserve it and that happens a lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i i read that it took him 12 years to write oh the other thing that i thought was interesting maybe it was in the article that you sent me nick but he already has his next book written Mm. because he'd been writing his debut for 12 years but always been thinking about other books that he would write so I think when he had to then write his second book he was he already had his idea and then he just needed to write it yeah um I think it just goes to show that the pros that you can have you know your debut book if you're a writer can come out whenever but actually you'll be writing for so much longer than just that book is there anything you want to talk about in adaptation station not really I haven't like I haven't it's, yeah, I haven't heard any big announcements. But oh, do you know what I want to talk about though? Have you watched any of the Queen's Gambit on Netflix? Yes, oh. I didn't love it. Oh, did you not? I know. I absolutely loved it, and I only just rediscovered that it was based on a book. Yes. Oh, yeah, that is an adaptation station because I thought I thought I'd read that it was based on a true story. I think the book no, was based on a real chess prodigy. So I mean, just to introduce it, it's about a young girl who lives in an orphanage and she discovers she's got this innate talent for chess and it kind of follows her progression from being this kind of unknown chess player kind of rising through the ranks in the sort of I think do they call it grandmaster is that the word um where she becomes a grandmaster and then she become rises through the ranks of the world I guess um I mean I I don't know about you I love chess but I I never play with any strategy I am terrible at it I know some good openings and once I'm in the game, I just play 
willy-nilly. So I liked watching this because I was like, this is giving me some insight now into what I should be doing and what I should be researching to try and beat more people mm. at chess. Because I think that's that's always an exciting moment when you beat someone at chess. It's a very cerebral game. Yeah. I've never been that fussed about chess, I have to say. It's never particularly attracted me as a game, but maybe I think it might just be because it feels so, so like obscure, if that's the right word, or like just unachievable. I look at a chessboard and I just don't understand it. Have you ever played? <laughs> and then, I have played, but like not a lot. So I started watching The Queen's Gambit. Oh yeah. And I just didn't, I don't know, I just didn't get into it. And I know lots of people have absolutely loved it, but I just found it a bit boring at the beginning. Mm, I've heard and that's that That's not too. because it's about chess. I think it was just a storytelling didn't engage me. Yeah, I know what you um, mean. I think it's very it's very visually nice to look at. It's very mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of good style in it, and especially as she gets yeah. more into fashion and kind of moves through the the fifties and the sixties, it's really fun to watch. I actually just to stick up for chess. I always actually think of chess as a very romantic game because it's how my parents met. They my dad taught my oh. mum to play chess, and then she beat him, and I love that. So I always oh, think good. of it something like a quite a romantic element, which feels very like pretentious. Whereas if you knew my mum and my parents, they're not very pretentious at all. Bless them. I can understand why people love it. Maybe because it's kind of a long game in the sense of well, I guess it depends who you're playing, but like. Maybe I just want instant gratification, whereas with chess I have to like actually think about it and like do things before it's I get fine, gratified. It's fine, Angela. You can you can think I'm a nerd. It's fine. All right, I get your judgment. <laughs> I always wonder if you know if if Beth had never seen a chessboard and learned how to play, she never would have yeah. known she was so good at it. I mean, it might have come out in other ways, but I always think that about like what if there's something out there that you're innately yeah. brilliant at, but you'll just never know what it is. I'm convinced it's going to be something. But also with so much of that sort of stuff, you have to, I feel like you have to to know it early. Maybe not so much chess, I don't know. But, you know, if they're going to be a tennis prodigy, you have to figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah, I think anything athletic is definitely something you've got to do pretty early on. Yeah. Uh, But speaking of learning things when you're a kid. Oh, a nice segue. (laughs) I'm really pleased with that. Our theme, should we get stuck in? Yes, so um, our theme this episode is childhood. So um, we are going to share some thoughts and ideas around the books that we would pack on our in our literary first aid kit for surviving childhood. And we sort of, we had a bit of a chat about whether we'd set some limits on this. Um, and we're kind of going pre-teen, you know, up to about the age of 12, because we felt like teenage years is a whole other mess. And that would, that requires, oh, yeah. that absolutely requires its own episode of like surviving your teenage years. So this is more, you know, I guess it's like starting on your literary journey. Yeah, I think kind of going to what you were saying about wanting to read some nice light things, I think you don't get much more pure and happy than some of your favourite childhood books. So I I definitely looked at it as going to be a child Mm. again and specifically in the same time period. Because I don't know about you... We are very much 90s children, right? Yeah, so I was born in 88. 88, so I was 91. So, like, growing up, again, I don't know about you, but I, so I'm quite an, this is a really strange story, but I'm quite an early riser. Like, especially as a kid, I always wake up really early. Um, And one thing, whenever I went to a sleepover at my friend's house, I'd always wake up before them, like, at least an hour or two before them. And back in that day, you know, you didn't have your phone or you didn't have the internet. You couldn't turn on the TV because then you'd wake your friend up. So I'd just go through their bookshelf and see, i just look at what there was to read so child so books have such a big they were such a big part of my childhood and reading mm. constantly in my childhood definitely far more than I ever did as an yeah. adult um so I'm quite excited to get stuck into yeah, this yeah I mean I'm the same I think it probably isn't much of a surprise that two people that have started a books podcast were bookish children but yeah I was the same <laughs> and I actually had this realization of, yeah in like my mid-20s I kind of had spent my early 20s I didn't really read I just I just stopped reading and I don't know if that's because social media had like really taken off at that point and that was part of it and I've been at uni and so, I don't know but I just hadn't read and I kind of made this conscious decision when I got realized this in my sort of mid to late 20s I was like I don't read anymore and I used to love reading and I had to kind of just yeah. teach myself to read again basically I had that when I was my late teens I think I just comp- I just read a lot of crap I really fell out of love with reading but then I found that because I studied English it was only really in third year that I thought, oh, I actually really enjoy this. I need to get back into this. I need to start. So I, I did set out quite a lot of time mm-hmm. throughout my 20s trying to find good books to read. And, it, and it, yeah, you're right. It's something you kind of have to relearn as, as you move into adult life. Yeah. And you get faced with more responsibilities. I remember, um, you know, summer holidays, which is in the UK about six weeks. 
through the summer of all this time and I would just spend it with my nose and a book the whole time like out in the garden just reading 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 or at least that's what my me- happens in my memory maybe I was doing other things I don't know but like yeah and I guess once you're an adult you don't get summer holidays anymore you have to fit reading in around true. jobs and like life so yeah oh god jobs <laughs> and life the true barriers to fun <laughs> should I kick off with my first suggestion yes yeah go for it so what my approach when I was thinking about this episode was I definitely did think about what the books that I most what I most enjoyed reading when I was a child and then I thought what was it about those books that I enjoyed and that were kind of essential to childhood so that's kind of that's how I sort of Mm. came to my conclusion about the three that I've sort of decided on they're not particularly I I feel like mine are always really obvious choices but that's fine um (laughs) yes I mean these books are popular for a reason so my first choice is well i'm going to choose one but it's a it's the narnia series by c.s lewis oh, and but my favorite of the narnia books was always the horse and his boy i don't know really why that one particularly captured my imagination i mean i love talking animals but there's lots of talking animals in narnia it was just that one i was just obsessed with remind me is that the first one chronologically no that is the fifth one so i'll do a brief summary oh. of what the narnia books are are for those who don't know um so the narnia series is a series of seven books by the author c.s lewis um they were um published in the early 50s so the first one was actually published in 1950 they're about at this magical land called narnia which you get to through sort of a portal and the probably the most famous book in the series is the lion the witch and the wardrobe in which the, the four Pevensey children, it's, this is during World War Two, are evacuated out to the countryside and they discover Narnia, this magical land, by walking through a wardrobe. But the whole book series is all, they're all based in Narnia and it's often people, young, children from our world, travelling into Narnia and having experiences that normally um, teach them something about who they are and how they should behave. So the reason that I've included the Narnia books is they're kind of a stand-in for this idea of adventure and fantasy books, which were an absolute staple of my childhood reading. I loved fantasy books. And I think it's this idea that as a child, I think in your imagination, I think is just a lot more open. And fantasy stories and fantasy worlds just feel a lot closer and a lot, they feel more real. And by reading fantasy books, it's, I mean, much as it is for adults, but I just think to an even higher degree, it's just escapism when you're a child um, and having an adventure. And actually, when you're a child, usually, if you have good parents, actually, your life is quite controlled because you have rules and you have to behave and you have to, you know, not go and do the dangerous thing because you should stay safe. Um, and again, ad- like adventure and fantasy books are kind of a way at, at sort of play acting at at being brave and play acting at being adventurous without actually doing anything dangerous and also they're just they're just fun um did you did you read them growing up yeah I did I I always think it's so interesting because I I know that the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe kind of took off as the main kind of popular one you know there were Mm. so many tv adaptations I had a cartoon adaptation on VHS back in the back in the 90s but I actually always really liked the first one I think it was with this idea of the rings and you put on the rings to travel into Narnia and and I don't know if maybe it was because it clashed with Lord of the Rings kind of conceptually um but I always thought that was such that was the one that really gripped me that idea of using rings to travel into different worlds and to be honest a bit more exciting than a wardrobe but but you're right I mean they were wonderful books growing up um and they and I they feel like I have very strong memories of reading those at school and being read those allowed by a teacher some of my books kind of cross this theme as well but I love these books that were written so many years before we Mm. were born that still have this sort of timeless quality to them that you can read kids in any generation can read them and get that same sense of excitement and adventure and that's never really gone away and I I do really like that yeah I I think it's I wonder if there's an element of you know children will always be children and I don't know like things that children obsess about or have anxieties about maybe you're just always the same because when I read the line of which is set in world war ii very different experience to growing up in the 90s and yet that never was a barrier to me empathizing with them and yeah like understanding them yeah that's so true I would say it's if I'm going to talk about Narnia, have to talk about the problematic aspects of Narnia. Um, I loved these books as a child, but I think there are definitely some issues with it that 
we should be aware of. So one of them is particularly with the horse and his boy, which is my favourite. Quite a lot of racism going on oh, there. No. Lots of stereotyping. The people with dark skin are all the baddies. Um, the people that are, you know, pale skinned and live in the north are the goodies. And sort of things about worshipping animal gods is evil. And or, there's lots of undertones. Go, maybe not even undertones. I think they're quite, they're sort of overtones, which reading with more knowledge and experience as an adult person, I can see is not, really okay um and i think the other big issue is some of the sexism that comes into the book as well which i think is interesting in the in narnia particularly london witch and wardrobe we actually have some quite strong female protagonists mm. so we have lucy and we have susan who fight like they fight in the, in wars and they make decisions as queens and they are equal as queens they're kind of basically equal to their brothers who become kings so in some ways it's really progressive but then there are other ways where it's less so. So one of the most sort of controversial aspects, I think, don't think it was controversial at the time, but more recently has been seen as controversial is, do you remember at the end of the last book, which is, let me just check what it's called, yeah, The Last Battle, at the end of that book? I don't know if I ever got that far. I think I'd, I remember getting up to, um, definitely past Prince Caspian. Um, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think, was the last one I read. But tell me about your sexism. <laughs> Never thought I'd be saying that. Very briefly, the at the right at the end of the last book, the last battle. Basically, yeah, the ending is that everyone who's ever been in the books previously from our world sort of ends up in Narnia. But the only person who doesn't get to go back to Narnia forever is Susan. And this is the awful bit, right? So the way that this all happens is that all of the Pevensey children, the ones in London Witch and the Wardrobe, along with their parents and the guy who owned the old house that they they stayed in they're all on a train that crashes and they all die in this world and when they die in this world they go off and live in narnia forever all except susan who wasn't on the train so susan doesn't get to go back to narnia so what's actually happened in reality is that susan's entire family has died all in one accident and she's oh just left on her own. So Lucy's like, oh, Aslan, who Aslan being the god, sort of god of Narnia. She's like, Aslan, why didn't Susan come? And he was like, oh, Susan got too interested, interested in lipstick and stockings. The implication being that Susan ah, just grew so she's up. she's kind of punished for doing so, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The implication, she, she just grew up and started being interested in adult things and interested in, like, sex and going out. Wow, and, yeah. And Neil Gaiman wrote a short story called Problem of Susan, which is a short story that is not, it's not explicitly about Susan in the books, but it is a story to being told by an older woman who talks about the death of her entire family in a train crash and a fantasy world that they used to visit. It's about Susan's perspective of this experience. And it sort of just highlights wow. how awful that is. Does he redeem her a little bit? I guess he gives her a bit more characterization in it. Yeah. And like Philip Pullman has commented on this as well. Philip Pullman, who's the author of the um, His Dark Materials trilogy, saying that you know, this is that C.S. Lewis didn't want to, he thought growing up was immoral and he thought the things that, that adults did were immoral and how wrong that was and how like he seemed to kind of idolize childhood because it was somehow a morally pure period of your life. Part of the reason that he wrote his dark materials or some of the thoughts that went into his dark materials around dust and how the bad guys in his dark materials are kind of like trying to trap people in sort of this pure state anyway i can't remember exactly his words but the point is that when you look like the narnia books when you look back yeah there's a bit some... icky there's a really interesting video essay by Lindsay Ellis. You know how much people love Lindsay Ellis. And she talks about that. What's that terrible Netflix film? Oh, it's called Bright. Mm. And she talks about how so many fantasy tropes are kind of rooted in coding, which is when characters are kind of implied to have certain qualities that we might associate with particular races mm. or ways of being that were villainized in yeah in culture so for example as you say the the bad characters having dark skin i think the orcs in lord of the rings are described in a certain way that is meant to imply to to bring certain races to people's minds who were reading at the time and how coding in of itself is not you know it's quite a neutral term yeah. but when you start to apply it to villainization versus kind of purification of characters um, it does get a little bit messy and also kind of you see how inbuilt it is and how sometimes people don't do it 
consciously but they have to be very cautious of this is the problem we've grown up reading these books that are suggesting certain things to us and we have to be very conscious when we're creating arts in the future that we we don't play into these stereotypes or these these codes um i'll share the link because it's an awesome video i I never watched bright but it sounds pretty crap to be honest but the essay taught me a lot about um sort of allegory and the kind of dangers of overdoing um you know your ideas about racism and things in um, fantasy literature so there are even ways that you it would be easy to think that that it's a a non-harmful stereotype like um like sort of having the mystical chinese character who's very wise yeah you think oh but he's wise so that's okay but it's just any kind of stereotyping is not okay really it definitely gets gets in a lot um should i go to my first book yes but actually it's kind of slightly linked to yours and probably linked with the fact it's got a slightly problematic author as well but also very we love a problematic prolific yeah (laughs) children's authors tend to be the worst which is pretty annoying um so my first book is actually by enid blyton um i read a lot of enid blyton brooks brooks books um when i was a kid and actually i've i've realized how much of them i've kind of internalized where i sort of have flashing memories of a certain book I've read and then I'll look it up and it'll have been a Nina Blyton book and it's very interesting but I wanted to talk about the Faraway Tree series which were my absolute favourites so um yeah I've never read these and I so many people oh my group have and it's just this thing that a world that completely passed me by so I want to hear about what happens yeah I mean the thing about kids books as well I have such a specific memory of the book itself this kind of like massive volume that was like yellow pages because it was so old and it had like this amazing illustration on it but um the far away tree series was published in uh, kind of in between the 30s and 50s uh, but obviously i was not reading them until the 90s um blighton was a su- hugely successful children's writer so i think she was probably pretty well known when these were published as well um, and it, basically it follows a group of kids who discover this enchanted wood near their house they move to a new house and they discover this forest and there's this enormous tree as the title suggests and they can go up that tree and they meet lots of interesting characters who live in this tree so you have these kind of iconic characters there's this guy called Moonface, who's got a big moon for a face there's a guy called the saucepan man who's just a man covered in pots and pans these are inventive names oh yeah i mean they're pretty they're pretty descriptive as far as they go but these kids uh they have adventures um and in this tree and this tree basically there's this ladder and if you climb this ladder you can go into another world the way it's described i can't remember exactly how she describes it but it's this thing of every day the world changes like it's almost like it's on revolving so a new world will move on and another world will appear so you can go up and every day and explore a new world but that means that you have to get back down by the end of the day because if you stay if you're stuck there oh, it'll move on and then it's re- and that idea really creeps me out um yeah that's pretty scary as a kid like i'm gonna get yeah, trapped and never again there were a couple again. of times that where they got close the kids were close to getting trapped in the world and i remember being absolutely horrified because my big thing as a kid was like the idea of being not at home sort of abandoned somewhere or or not able to reach my family that would have been horrendous um but the reason it's in my first aid kit I think it's similar to yours Angela where it was like my earliest memory of reading something that felt very big and very expansive Mm. and very kind of never-ending and that kind of fantastical element and I have that really I have a really strong memory of that feeling that feeling like whoa there's so much in this book and there's so much I kind of remember it as almost like a dream, or it's like this enormous world in my head. Um, again, you know, we say kids literature does this so well, where it it shows that books and stories can be really ambitious. And mm. I think that gets a little bit lost when you get older and you start reading more adult fiction, which tends to be quite constrained in a way that these kids' fantasy books aren't. And I do love, you know, how timeless it is. Again, saying, you know, my, my parents read it. Um, I read it and now I'm seeing my four-year-old cousin reads it or she's being read it at night and I just think that's yeah. amazing that it's going it's crossing for this generation so yeah similar to you I just love a good fantasy book as a kid I think it's so great for playing into kids imaginations and I have such respect for writers who can do that really well and I think there's there is this theme in children's literature which I think you see less in adult literature like adult fantasy which is in children's fantasy there's often this element of you leave this world and you go off to another world and even in like you know modern classics like Harry Potter being the obvious massive children's book although it's still very much this world it's a hidden part of this world that he goes into and I think you know it's almost like like books are your way into another world and Mm. when you yeah when you go on these adventures in these fantasy books you're often kind of leaving behind 
something that day to day is quite boring sometimes yeah um, very true but uh yeah that's my second book and again i think elid Blyton probably had some controversial leg- legacy probably even more so than c.s lewis but I, I haven't read too much about it so i won't go into all that it, what's what's um as we love talking about gender on this podcast how the girls come out in the faraway tree I couldn't possibly tell you. I have absolutely no memory. I'm pretty sure there are at least two girls in the core group of siblings. There are certainly, I mean, the the more memorable characters to me are men, but I don't, I don't really recall it being that bad. I think, I think again, Ina Blyton. I think she did try and incorporate lots more because she she also was kind of incorporated a lot of tomboy-esque girls mm. or girls who didn't really play by these rules so i was also a really big fan of um the naughty school girl books which were her oh. ones all about yeah i didn't read those either and... oh see they were fantastic and again it's about i mean the probably that it's <laughs> probably that the message at the end is like oh you know you may be a rebel but as soon as you tighten your bootstraps and put your lipstick on and become a young lady that's when things will go well for you so i'm not gonna say that you know, she's probably the most brilliant messages. But I do remember there being a lot of good female protagonists and certainly not noticeably bad in the way that some of the books are. Um, and the fact that my, you know, kids are still reading it now, I think is a good sign because I think obviously both parents and kids are now becoming much more aware of how the good portrayals that are out there, you know, we don't have to settle for which of what we've got anymore. And I think that's really um, interesting. Yeah, I so, think that's the yeah. thing. I, I feel like we have definitely said this before, but I think it's okay to read books where portrayals of women or girls aren't that great if you also have lots of books that you're reading where they are portrayed really straight. You can read exactly, some of the old yeah. classics and they can still be fun and they can still be escapist. And as long as you have like a range, I don't think it's too damaging to young children. I think even in the 90s as well, probably certainly more now, that they felt very old-fashioned, the kids, you know, even their names, everything about them felt really old-fashioned. And yeah. even the fact that, you know, the naughty school, you couldn't get further away from my sort of experience in the 90s of, like, this 50s school child in a boarding school um, where they go, they spend 50p at tuck shops. And, you know, everything yeah. about them is like, what? Um, so I think there might be an element of sort of forgiveness as well of this idea of like, oh, well, maybe that's just how girls in the 1950s were. Whereas nowadays, we you know girls have a lot more freedom. Or very oh, different. I wanted to go to boarding school because I read so many books where people had japes. Oh, yes. Like, oh, yeah. To go to boarding a- an school. An absolutely wizard time they'd have. <laughs> I'm really glad I did. Yeah, go to I, I, I feel like, like a lot of adults who did go end up feeling quite traumatized from it. But yeah, certainly the, it's presented as being very fun in children's books. So. My second choice is going in the very opposite direction of sort of the fantasy world. Oh. So my my second book, again, could really be a whole sort of, it's really a collection of books, I guess, but it's by the, I'm thinking of one particular author and I want to talk about Jacqueline Wilson. Oh, I also got one of hers on my list. Ah, I would have the same one. I don't know. I mean, she wrote a lot. <laughs> so my, the one I've included is The Illustrated Mum. Ah, yeah, that's not the one I had on my list, but that's a good one. So The Illustrated Mum is a book by Jacqueline Wilson, as I said. It was published in 1999, and it follows the story of a a young girl called Dolphin, and she lives with her mum, Marigold, and her sister, Star. And Dolphin and Star have different dads, um, and Marigold, the mum, is still very much in love with Star's father, Mickey and she's driven to go looking for mickey and, and ultimately manages to find him at a gig where he's a musician so star and her father reunited marigold the mum wants to restart a relationship with mickey um but he has a new girlfriend and a new life and he rejects her and it sort of sends her on a downward spiral because marigold has manic depression and these is all told through dolphin's eyes as she watches her mum spiral downward in terms of her mental health and it ultimately results in Marigold painting herself white with paint Ooh, to cover up such... these, all her tattoos, which she sees as a symbol of her not fitting in and not being attractive to Mickey anymore. Such a disturbing part of the book to remember that scene. It is. Bath, that scene freaked me out so much um, as mm. a child. But it ultimately ends with Dolphin and Star being taken into care. But Dolphin slowly coming to realise that it's that they just that they're still a family, even if they're not the same type as family that her other friends have. So the reason that I included this, and I feel like I could have included a lot of Jacqueline Wilson books, um, is that I think 
reading Jacqueline Wilson books helped me kind of understand that people lived very different lives to me. I had a very privileged upbringing. I had, you know, two very loving parents. I had a very stable home. I was given a very good education. All of these things that, you know, I'm very fortunate to have had. Um, And I think Jacqueline Wilson writes really sensitively and realistically and accessibly about children who don't have lives like that. And I don't think she ever writes it in a pitying way, just in a very Mm. real way. Um, And I think reading her books helped me understand that there are other children who have lives that are not always easy. And I think that's an important thing for children to learn. And I think books are a really wonderful way to learn it. So that is why I included that book. Yeah, I think as well. I mean, obviously for us, she was such a figure in children's literature when we were growing up. She was like the number one. If you were a young girl, you were reading Jacqueline Wilson. Mm -hmm. And so for her to be writing these books about, you know, I, I completely, I almost wrote down what you said word for word, you know, the things around, you know, she writes about working class families in a way that wasn't being written about in other books. You yeah. look at Ina Blighted, for example, where everyone's at boarding school having a great upper middle class <laughs> time. Um, she writes about poverty. She writes about mental illness. And she, and you know, she writes about all these topics. And, and then she's got her sort of teenage focused books, which are about things like sexual assault and eating disorders. Mm. But she writes about it in this way where it's, but it's accessible and it's humorous. And it's and I always think, so the one I was going to include actually was um, The Bed and Breakfast Star. I don't know if you've read that one. Yes, I um, read that one too. And again, I'm like you, you could pick any of them and have that sense of like happiness and feeling of nostalgia. And there was, su- there was such well-written, entertaining books, but also underneath it. I think the illustrated mum was a little bit more overt about the pressures that they, um, Dolphin particularly was facing mm. as a result of her mum's illness and things. But the Bed and Breakfast Star, I think it was probably targeted at a slightly younger age as well. It follows a girl named Elsa and she lives in a B&B hotel. And it is implied to be that it's because her mum got together with a guy who developed a gambling addiction and he's quite abusive. She calls him Matt the Smack. So, you know, he's quite physically abusive and they were effectively forced into poverty which means they had to live in a hotel um but the way that Elsa sees it is this like cool exciting alternative home like oh my god I'm so cool I live in a hotel and you know she's a joker she wants to be a comedian she sees the funny side of everything and like the light side and she enjoys the excitement of living somewhere and I just I don't, I, I don't know many other writers that could have gotten away with it have written yeah. these books about these such heavy topics um and I don't know about you but I did a little bit of I tried to find some interviews from her uh, and I found one that she wrote on the British Library website where um she said that you know they asked her about the fact that she writes about these books with kids who come from these different backgrounds and she said that quote I've had wonderful letters and emails from children who have been through the care system or perhaps their parents are going through a divorce or they've just lost their best friend they feel comforted to know that they're not alone and that it's not their fault end quote and again, kind of saying what, what I was saying as well about the sense of these other authors writing books about very privileged kids. She says, um, quote, most children's books in the 1950s and 60s were very middle class with children living with kind, reliable mummies and daddies in a big house with a lovely garden to play in. I loved reading about this world, but remember thinking that my own life wasn't a bit like that. I longed for much grittier stories even then. End quote. And I'm like you, I probably had that during my idyllic childhood. I had two very loving parents and a big garden and a nice stable upbringing. And yeah, I think reading about these different, I'd love to know how much it's influenced my attitude as an adult. I don't think we'll yeah. ever really know. But I think it's so, I think it's so interesting that she was such a beloved, prolific figure, but she was mm-hmm. writing these really heavy books in a very light, fun way. I think it's amazing. I think that's a really interesting point to make. Like how much did that influence my politics, if that's not too extreme, like a connection to make? Yeah. Because I think they really tr- teach you empathy for people who don't have everything that you have. And like, I... You know, I believe in social welfare and I believe in supporting people who've fallen on hard times. And I wonder how much of that is because I've read these books where I've been given an insight into people who have that experience. Don't know. I don't know if this is a real memory or not. I think it is. I'll have to go and see if I've still got the book. But I'm pretty sure Jacqueline Wilson came to my school, my primary school. That's cool. I, have, I also met her as a kid and she signed one of my books and it was a very exciting. But I went to a talk... I think she must have just done, I don't know, maybe she just did school tours and stuff. Like, it was just a normal C of E primary school. 
So maybe it was just like part of a thing where she went around to different schools. Yeah, sounds like it. I mean, she's still writing so much now. That's what's amazing about her. She's been powering through her whole life. Yeah, isn't she um, been children's laureate maybe? I feel like she, she must have had some kind of... Oh, I'd believe um, it. I just, again, I mean, this is another topic of the whole theme as well, but I have such respect for writers that can write good children's literature. And I think she nailed the voice very well, especially considering, did you ever read any of her girls in love series and yes. where it moved into the more of the young adult and then it's being able to write for i mean us effectively as girls growing up from that such young age to the older age and the one thing i don't know is many if many boys wrote her books i'm curious about that i have a feeling they probably didn't yeah i mean they were very i might ask around and did she ever have a, oh no, she did have a few boy protagonists she had um i don't even read a cliffhanger there was a boy that was the protagonist. I didn't read it, but yeah, I can picture the front. Because um, who's that? The illustrator who... Nick Sharrett, yeah. Always did have a... She had two illustrators, and I always liked Nick Sharrett more. And I'm, I feel very bad saying that now, because I'm sure the other illustrator's lovely and also very talented. But the Nick Sharrett books covers were iconic Jacqueline Wilson. Yeah. But she did have a couple of male protagonists, but I'm trying to think of many others. I'm she was sure. Children's Laureate, by the way. I think she was Children's... Oh, yeah, she was? Um, from 2005 to 2007. Oh, very good. But yeah, her books were great growing up. There were just so many. I could barely pick one. I was... Because then even if you think about Tracy Beaker, the one thing I did think was quite interesting was I was trying to think about the level of diversity in her books. And I don't recall there being a huge amount yeah, of diversity. Yeah, I think they were pretty white. But then again, yeah. maybe that's partly to do with the... I Because the illustrations, I think, were pretty much always white kids. Well, that's the thing, because she's gone on the record to say that she always imagined that Tracy Beaker was actually a mixed race mm. because and if you think back on the way she was described um she is described as having like black very curly hair yeah. so it's not totally crazy to believe that because of this idea that she doesn't know who her dad is yeah you know there is this sense of well maybe it could have been a man of a different race but that being said I think with the as you say the illustrations and then also the way the tv show was cast I mean it very much they do feel like quite white books yeah and also that Tracy B Be- Tracy Beaker was black all along just thinks of the jk rowling oh hermione was black all along where it's like that's very true yeah clearly she wasn't because if she was you would have made it obvious so i think i'm always a little bit like eye rolly when when yeah they're like oh they were black all along they were gay eye rolling good pun i like it yeah um it is very true but yeah on having a quick gander on wikipedia her bibliography and it is huge this she has written a lot of books I think she's written 111 wow. books, I want to say. Crikey. Um, I, loved, I loved her books when I was younger. And as, yeah, as we've both pointed out, I think they were great at giving young people insight into other worlds and lives that don't get a lot of mention in the media. Um, the other person I think is really great. Any excuse to get Mallory Blackman into a conversation because I love her. Um, I oh, think she was amazing. also, obviously wrote books of teenagers but i remember reading some amazing mallory blackman books when i was younger like pig heart boy and hackers oh yeah where they work at non-white characters and they were again tackling like big issues um so jacqueline wilson That's isn't the only person doing that sort of thing but i just i think jacqueline wilson was so pervasive when we were younger and it's really mm, good very true what's your third book so my third book um as always my third book is all, i'm always like run out of ideas by the time i get to book three um, but I was trying to think okay what is a book that fe- like feels really fun I was trying to think of um, really fun books because I think books that inspire a love of reading are often just those really fun books and I think kind of some classic and maybe quite obvious sources of fun books um, are Roald Dahl and Michael Rosen so I'm kind of combining them as authors in my sort of last love recommendation yeah. so I was trying to think of oh, is there a book in particular I would choose Um, And I think I would go for Matilda by Roald Dahl. Um, So yeah, I I think Roald Dahl, and I'm going to throw Michael Rosen in there, as I say, because I kind of, I sort of, for some reason, I always think of them together, even though actually they're writing at quite different time periods. But anyway. I don't know if I've read any Michael Rosen. So he does, he has done quite a lot of younger children books. Like he he did Going on a Bear Hunt. Um, But he does a lot of poetry, mainly poetry. And I just, I had this big book of Michael Rosen poems when I was a kid and they were all really funny poems about like people with no trousers on and things and they were just I just found them hilarious <laughs> a timeless classic people with no trousers on can't go wrong really sophisticated sense of humour I had when I was a kid it's like oh someone ate a cake and they vomited <laughs> hilarious <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I'm going to go for Roldar Matilda because it's also very meta because it's a book about a child loving reading. True. So yeah. Matilda is by Roldal. It was published in 1988, which is the year of my birth, which I didn't know. Oh, oh my gosh, it was fate. You have grown up to be Matilda. Uh, Matilda is five and a half and she has uh, amazing reading skills. Well, in fact, she's actually just a very gifted child and she sort of doesn't fit into her family. Her family all... We'll get to classism in this book later on. Don't worry. But her family are all like sure. pretty stupid and they just watch TV all day and they don't care about reading. Um, but Matilda is very clever and she teaches herself to read. Anyway, Matilda starts school at the Trunchbull Academy, which is headed up by the head teacher, Mrs. Trunchbull, who's very evil. Um, she's not very nice to the children. She comes up with horrible, scary punishments for any naughty children her teacher miss honey realizes that matilda is very gifted also matilda can do telekinesis she can move things with her mind and that's because she's not really being challenged enough um mentally so she's her her kind of intelligence comes out as telekinesis and ultimately she manages to get revenge on mrs trunchbull using her telekinesis it's basically just about like a really clever girl who loves reading and telling stories and i was a young girl who loved reading and telling stories so i felt like matilda when i was reading it and i loved it and it has funny silly jokes um and if you haven't seen the theater the musical matilda oh my god oh, i love yeah. it i really need to see it one of my favorite musicals i know it's ostensibly for children but honestly the songs are amazing and it doesn't matter how old you are it's great I have heard it's pretty great. And I also think, as you say, because we read that book when we were kids, I think it would bring back that sense of nostalgia. Whereas a book about, sorry, a musical about a kid's book now might feel a bit more yeah, like Yeah, be a bit distant, yeah. I never, I don't think I ever read Matilda, but I, well, maybe I did a very long time ago. I read The Witches and absolutely loved it. Everyone yeah, I loved The Rondal. Witches as well. And also uh, The Twits, they were great yeah. as well. Um, but the thing I really like about Matilda is... In all of, in a lot of kids' books, there seems to be this idea that you have this horrible sub-family, this horrible step-family, and then your real parents are just waiting mm. to come and take you and, and bring you into the world, you, the family you were always meant to have because you were born into the... No, you were kind of put yeah. into the wrong family. But I like that Matilda kind of flips that on its head, where her biological family are the ones that she wants to escape from. And it's this idea of you can choose your new family, you can go mm. out and seek new people whose values align with yours. Yeah. And it's not this thing of you're stuck with who you were born with. I mean, I don't know how much of a message that is for kids, but I really, I like that. I like that it kind of, you know, if, if you were a kid reading it and you didn't have, you had quite an, you know, going back to our Jacqueline Wilson, you had some family issues or you, you were in quite an unstable background I think that idea of knowing that you can have freedom and independence mm. one day whether that be that day or many years later it's quite must be quite cool to read as a kid I don't know That's yeah I get, I get what you mean like I hadn't really thought about it in that way yeah I think that is a nice message I, I, can, I can see how it might be taken in different ways I guess yeah but actually I think if you read it that way that you can feel like you don't fit in or you can feel unaligned with your family values and that's okay <laughs> you can go up yeah find other people yeah um, i think yeah. especially if if you're you know from a particular religious background and you're mm. you know you might be going through issues that your religion doesn't support i don't know i'm throwing out examples yeah, but no, i think no, there no. are I lots think that's of a really interesting reading yeah i think there are yeah. lots of um ways you can interpret it but uh yeah great book what so, so what were you saying about the classism though so obviously can't look at a book from well, I mean, that was 1988, so pre-1990s. <laughs> Everything's got to be problematic. This whole um, podcast has been like, what's aged poorly? Let's yeah. get into it. <laughs> okay, so the only thing with Matilda, maybe not the only thing, the only thing that I can think of anyway, is like, so it's been accused of classism because Matilda's parents are kind of portrayed as being like, being lower class and being trashy and being uneducated and TV is rubbish and like it melts your brain. Um, and that's why they're all idiots. Whereas Miss Honey, who's the teacher that notices that Matilda is gifted, is very is like sort of middle class ideal, like very refined, very sensitive, does lots of reading, would never watch television. Um, and some people feel like it's sort of just not very heavily veiled classism. And it's basically saying if you're working class, you're stupid and have no ambition. Um, that's really interesting because I was going to say, I can't remember the book so well, but I do remember the film. And there is that sense of her dad being sort of villainized for being... I mean, he probably has quite a dodgy job. Well, yeah, I, I mean, he is a criminal he... in the film. I think I think in the book... <laughs> a I criminal? Situations, but, like, he defrauds people. 
So he isn't nice. Yeah. I think I remembered him as being like this guy obsessed with his job when actually in reality he's obsessed yeah. with crime. So forget all of that. <laughs> but yeah, I can see that. I can yeah. see the, the kind of classism implied. But one of the things I also actually like about it as well, like a positive thing about it, is I quite like the fact that Matilda does really naughty things because she's like, oh, my parents are being bad, so it's okay to punish them. And again, I kind of tied into your point about like, you know, you if you have different values to your family, that's okay. And I think it's kind of saying, well, you know what, like sometimes rules, that rules are bad rules, or like sometimes you can break rules for good reasons. And I think that's actually a good lesson for children. I think if you teach children, oh, you always have to obey rules, I'm not sure that's an entirely useful lesson. I think there's a good lesson in some rules you can break if you're doing it for good reasons. I reckon there are a lot of parents thinking, what is she talking about? We have rules. No, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, I think there's an interesting, I guess that's the thing as well. And, you know, with all, as we're saying throughout this podcast, we all live vicariously through these kids. So it's exciting to read about them. I was a proper goody two shoes as a child. I could not bear being shouted at by a parent or oh, a teacher too. or anything like that. So reading about a child breaking a rule and having fun with it was as far as I'd go in terms of mm. rebelling. So yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I would say like any Roald Dahl. My mum hates Roald Dahl. Oh, really? I don't know, maybe hates is a strong word, but she's like, I, Roald Dahl hates parents. In his books, parents are always terrible or they're dead or they're this, that, any other. Which is interesting, but I think, as always, with children's books, you have to do something to get rid of parents, otherwise you can't have a story. So it's kind of convenient to make your That's very true. Character I also orphan. feel like, I don't know how true that is in terms of, I mean, maybe it's more grandparents that are kind of held up as these lovely beings. Because I'm thinking of things like um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or... Um, mm. Or is it Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? I think it's the book is called. Or even the witches. I think there are definitely nice parental figures. And I mean, even at the end of Matilda. Oh, spoiler! But I'm sure no one cares. Um, Matilda gets adopted by Miss Honey, so she becomes her daughter, and then that's mm. kind of like considered to be a very lovely mother-daughter relationship. So I mean, I think you're right. I think it's it's like fairy tales as well. There's always got to be. There's, there has to be ways it has to be about the kids because in real life, your parents are the ones protecting you and making sure you don't do all these horrible adventures. So they need to be bumped off in many ways in these books. Well, bumped off or like, yeah, you have to be Yeah, they have to be incapacitated or... somehow from looking after you because in real life, Andrew's mum, parents are very lovely and we love them dearly. <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> What's your last your last contribution to the first aid kit. Right. Well, my last one is actually not too different from Jacqueline Wilson in a sense, in the point I'm going to make. So, um, but it is, I, I wanted to talk about this book because I don't think I've really met anyone who's ever read it. It's called Vinegar Street by Philip Ridley. You read it? I definitely don't think I've read it. So this is a really weird thing because, so Philip Ridley, he is one of these artists who just does everything. Mm. So he's a playwright, he's an author, he writes children's books and adult books he's a director he's a filmmaker he's a photographer he's a visual artist he's he does everything and around when we were kids he was writing very successful children's books um that were kind of known for being extremely weird and extremely Mm. wacky and imaginative in not always a very fantastical way but in the sense of creativity within the storyline of the characters themselves but might not even incorporate magic if that makes sense so the two that i read were mighty fizz chiller which is i i remember thinking as a massive book but probably was about 300 pages and this particular favorite which was vinegar street so this book was published in 2000 it's very hard i don't know if you found this maybe not but it's very hard to find information on the internet about lesser known Mm. children's books when they were came out in the 90s so i am actually remembering this plot on memory alone and so it could be wrong but i'm going to try and sum up the plot um it follows a character named poppy pickle sticks she's a young girl i think she's meant to be about 11 or 12 um and she lives in this street called vinegar street and she lives with again this is pure memories could be wrong she lives with her mum um and a couple of they have some very distinctive neighbours. So one of them is like an old Texan cowboy woman. Another one is like a very posh old man. Um, and they all have a very distinctive way of speaking, of dressing, of being, um, including Poppy. She's very gothic, very alternative, wears clothes with lots of skulls on them and things. And she lives this kind of very happy, idyllic lifestyle where, you know, they, the neighbours all love each other. They're very different, but they celebrate each other's differences and they really enjoy spending time together. But, she, but Poppy is also a little bit psychic. She has this feeling 
where it's described as like a voice in her head telling her what's about to happen. But as the book progresses, the voice becomes a character. It's kind of written as having dialogue with Poppy and it becomes this very dry, sarcastic, amusing character. And I remember it's written in this kind of like swirly font. The whole book is actually written very poetically so there are parts of the book where it's not really written as prose it would just be like words on the page or all kinds of stuff but basically the there's the conflict of the plot is that a new family move in and one of them being a, the mother i think who is a very glamorous conventionally attractive feminine woman who basically wants to upscale the whole street she wants to gentrificate it's exactly it's a whole thing about gentrification she wants so they bring in you know there are scenes where builders come in and want to demolish the street and she wants everyone to have this kind of very conforming lifestyle and you know, there, co- there probably could be some veiled sexism in there in terms of, like, she wants everyone to be super feminine. And it's like, oh, this disgusting woman. And as the novel goes on, Poppy learns how to use her powers and really starts to try to save the street. But there's this element of threat that she might become too powerful and that could be really problematic. But yeah, it's pretty much a metaphor for gentrification. And I find it interesting that Philip Ridley grew up mm. in the east end of london so i don't know if maybe he was writing it based on his own experiences of gentrification um i haven't as i say it's so hard to find anything on the internet i haven't found any real mention of this book but it was a book that i read at least 50 times as a kid i reckon i was obsessed with this book i absolutely fell in love with it um and i like it because it was the first book i read that was very experimental mm. um, and kind of poetic and i think it really got me into the trend this and other philip ridley books that got me into the trend of liking books and stories that are a bit different a bit weird a bit yeah. mythical you know could be very grounded in realism but have this element of fantasy and sort of dark fantasy um and also kind of exploring political issues through character so i just don't think i would be the writer i am or the reader i am today without yeah. having read philip ridley um and i even remember when i was about 16 kind of starting to read sci-fi books that i was like well this reminds me of philip ridley i like this book so it kind of it felt a very natural way to kind of propel me into some of my favorite books as an adult so i yeah if i was going back in time and becoming a kid again i would 100 percent read this book again it felt quite formulative formulative for, form- formative uh, formative <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> Felt quite formative for me in terms of what kind of books mm. I like to read. But as I say, I can't find anyone who's read any bloody Philip Ridley. I, say, I, I thought it sounded familiar, but once you told me what it was about, that is not does not ring a bell with me at all. I couldn't tell you how it appeared in my mm. life. I did, I did try and read a couple of his other books. So the, the most famous children's book he wrote was this one called Kringle Cracks or something like that um, and I think that won a couple of awards I think there was like a Smarties mm. book award for kids fiction I, I don't remember connecting with his other books in the way that I connected with Vinegar yeah. Street and also Mighty Fizz Chiller uh, even the names you know everything about them was so original and so much fun to read as a kid and I, and again having that kind of underlying message is is really nice and yeah Philip Ridley if you're out there I'm sorry if I did a bad job describing your book. Please, can you put it on the internet so I can read it again? I heard you say that it was one that you just read over and over again. And Mm. I have definitely had books like that in childhood. I had one particular book, which I think I've told you about before, called uh, What Katie Did, which I just read over and over again. I think you do that when you're a kid, when you find something. And I think because kids' books tend to be shorter, I know like it takes longer to read because you're a kid, but because they're so much shorter, you can just keep reading it over and over, and like you just get a bit obsessive about it, don't you? Yeah, I've got an obsessive personality. I once I find something I like, I will yeah. devour it constantly. But I've noticed that you know, even looking at my cousin and how she will watch the same film over and over and over again, and I oh, feel sorry yeah. for her poor parents. But I guess that's just it. When you're a kid, you just you just want to mm. repeat the experience even when you know what's coming you just yeah. want to keep reliving it which i tend to do with films now as an adult i do do that with films i think maybe it's a comfort yeah. thing as an adult easy and i know what's going to happen but i don't do it with books really i very rarely reread a book these days i don't know about i you. started to try to reread some books some of my favorite books as an adult and i think it's not as good as rereading when you're mm. a kid or it's not as good as rewatching a film i think I think maybe that is a very specific, a thing that is very specific to being a child is rereading a book over and over. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, not not as not as fun. I have found it really fun actually researching this episode, and there are so many books I'd forgotten because I went through lists of top 100 children's books. I was just interested to see if any of the ones I'd chosen were on those. Yeah, I just came across so many. I was like, oh God, give me some more. Did I write any down? I remember one I used to love anything to do with animals i was obsessed with i loved animals as a kid anything set on like farms like charlotte's web the sheep pig i oh, loved yeah. dick kingsmith i gotta i gotta confess i'm not a big animal reader uh, as a kid i was i was big on my animal stories <laughs> and then i think i've told you as well before when i was a kid i loved a victorian a nice victorian novel about an impoverished child little princess what katie did the <laughs> secret, secret garden, garden um the railway yeah. children anything that was like victorian and people were thrown into poverty oh yeah oh, that that ticked Bit my you. boxes <laughs> is there is there anything that you remember <laughs> loving as a child that now you do think is that i would not you know it just feels really problematic now oh that's a really interesting one um I don't think so. Probably more as a teenager, there's a lot of crap that I read that I'd be like, oh, I'd never ever even tell anyone I read this terrible book. What I found quite interesting, and again, I'm going to talk about the fact that maybe it is just a thing of our time and I'm not having much on the internet, but there were so many books that feel sort of imprinted in my memory that then when I tried to look for them online, I couldn't find mm. them. Um, I have this very specific memory of reading a book about a magical tree house and there are books, there are American books called The Magic Treehouse, but these aren't, this isn't the one I'm thinking of. Mm. And I spent a long time trying to find it on the internet and I couldn't find anything. But it's weird how much these images kind of stay in your brain. I think that's so exciting for a children's author to know that, or an illustrator, to know that your story could still be living in someone's brain. Yeah. And as I say, so I was reading another book and they were talking about reading a story about mice who go into a house and they go into a doll's house and they're like, oh, look at all this food, it's amazing. But then they find out it's all made of plaster. And I, and I texted my sister and I was like, I swear that's familiar. So I went on a bit of a hunt for it. Turns out it's an Enid Blyton story. And I found all the illustrations. And just looking at the pictures, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I remember it so well. And my sister was like, yeah, I remember that too. And it's just so strange how these things stay in your subconscious but come out at weird times. Yeah. yeah. We talked a little bit about it when we talked about the illustrated mum and that scene where she paints herself in the bath. And I think there are moments you encounter in children's literature sometimes like that which yeah they just mm. are kind of so shocking as a child because maybe they're the first time you encountered something like it and it just it, it is something that sticks in your head forever yeah um, i think with jacqueline wilson as well like that because my parents felt quite conventional it was really interesting and scary to read books about girls who had strange mothers or had issues with their mothers mm. and that and i found that quite frightening but it must be such an interesting thing to write about for kids if you're a children's author he said i don't know how you do it yeah. i i've never really felt a compulsion to write a children's mm, book same, yeah. um certainly i could imagine writing maybe for teenagers but yeah i think it's so hard to to pitch a book to pre-teens i admire people who can do it how do you Such feel about this kind of growing trend of celebrities writing children's books it seems to always very specifically the children's books that celebrities are writing yeah i i feel conflicted because at the end of the day if a book is a good book and children enjoy it then i i feel like that can only mm. be a positive however i imagine there are so many people out there in the world who are not celebrities who are writing wonderful books maybe more diverse books in a lot of cases who don't get a look in because so much time and money is spent on people that get a book deal because they already have a name. Because mm. I know that, um, what's his name? Who's that comedian David we talked Williams. about before? David Williams. I believe his books are really, that kids yeah. love them. So on the one hand, I'm like, well, kids love them. They love them. But on the other hand, I sort of think, well, maybe there is someone who could be writing more interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I think as well. I think the amount of celebrities I'm seeing who are, who don't I think Dave Williams is an interesting case because he is actually a writer as well like he, he's a comedy writer so it doesn't seem like a yeah. massive leap for him to be writing books and writing funny kids books I think it's quite you know it's quite nice that he's found this kind of niche there but when I see a lot of actors do it and this is you know again no real shade on the fact that the actors probably are really good but it 
there's almost this implicit thing of, oh, well, kids' books are easier, so I'll write a kids' book first, or I'll write a kids' book. I want to jump into writing. I'll start with a children's book. And I, and I don't want to generalise that at all, but that's kind of the... And I'm sure, as I say, I'm sure they're very good in their own merit, but that's kind of the impression mm. it gives off, this sense of, oh, well, like, everyone's writing a kids' book, so yeah. I'll write one too. And I think if you were an actual children's author, you'd be like, actually, it's not very easy and... As we've said, you know, we wouldn't even dream of trying it because yeah. it sounds incredibly hard. So, but that's just the impression I sometimes get. I wonder how much support they get. I mean, maybe there are some people who li- it's literally ghostwritten, but I wonder how much editorial support they get. True. Don't know. Yeah. Is there anything else that you were thinking about when you were researching or thinking about books? Was there anything that struck you about your sort of your childhood history of reading? Not really. I mean, as you've said, you kind of found a pattern. I didn't really find much of a pattern. I always thought that I often read books that were designed to be read Mm. by little boys. But actually, looking back, I actually think a lot of my books were very much designed Mm. for girls. Um, But I do feel like I read pretty widely in terms of themes and topics and things. And and yeah, I just, I kind of miss, I I very much enjoy reading now, but I miss that feeling of when you're a kid and a book is the most exciting thing. And it is probably nature of the time where you didn't really have much else to do. I wouldn't have the internet to distract you from life. So yeah, I miss that feeling of really getting stuck into a book. Especially, I mean, as I said, we're probably going to do a separate episode on teenagers, but... And I think both of our teenage years were probably dominated by Harry Potter because it was like just perfect timing. But that memory of waiting for the Harry Potter book to come out. I've never been that excited about a book as an adult, I don't think. So yeah, there is something, there's something really nostalgic about reading as a kid. Well, I am actually, I'm going to sound like a right nerd, but I was pretty excited about The Mirror and the Light when that came out. I went to an event, I got it, and I, when I held it, I was like, oh my god! Because <laughs> I read it, I've been waiting like seven years for it, so... But that's, yeah, that's the only comparable book moment, I think, in my adult life. Ah, to go back to the days where you could spend a whole six weeks reading and social media didn't distract you. I know. And now we're in the other side of it, where we're trying to write and social media is distracting yeah, us. Yeah, I know. So that's a lot of fun. I do think it's a real honour to, to have your book be kind of part of classic children's literature because like you said children's books are so formative when I was researching this topic and I came across books that I had forgotten I'd read as soon as I saw the title I was like oh my god yes that was amazing Mm. and again I don't really think I have that about any books I've read as an adult I've definitely had favorite books I've read as an adult but not such a visceral reaction that's so true yeah yeah what a lovely note to end on so um I feel like we can't talk about next episode because it always changes (laughs) yeah let's not (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you listen again we'll be talking about something uh, but in the meantime if you enjoyed it please do tell your friends and family raters on whatever platform you're listening on uh, and follow us on twitter at first Aid lit where you can agree or disagree with all things books that we talk about we'll see you next time which is a 